wicked, wicked fly. This is your summer. That means Six Flags in the taste of an ice-cold Coca-Cola. We're talking thrilling coasters, delicious burgers, yes. real moments together, and this. Coke is summer refreshment when you need it most, so you can hop on another ride or race down a slide at the water park. Six Flags and Coca-Cola, come make it yours. Visit sixflags.com slash coke to save up to $20 on passes, plus daily tickets starting at $34.99. This is Karen with newclevelandradio.net, and it is time for Avoid the Maze. And Avoid the Maze is about a journey through life, and we're all on a journey. Um, and oftentimes, um, as my guest just reminded me, we think that our journey is just ordinary just we're not doing anything special we are just walking the path but the reality of it is if we sit down and we think about it there is something really extraordinary about each of us so sam Thiera is with us today and um we're going to talk about um the extraordinary the ordinary and you know maybe we can start feeling really good about ourselves and you know, take that first step to whatever it is we want to do. So welcome, Sam. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing really well. And I look forward to the opportunity of sharing with you and your audience. Very good. So you are in our neighboring country of Canada. Um, and we were just talking about the weather. I mean, everybody talks about the weather. Uh, the weather uh, for some people is very ordinary, but right now the United States is um, all across the United States. We're expecting this big, huge storm. And um, I saw this morning people panicking in the grocery store. But the funny part is if they really listen to the weather report, it's gonna clear up the day after. So, you know, taking all the bread off the shelf and all the milk off out of the counter, you didn't have to do that. But I guess it's part of who we are. So tell us a little bit how you came up with this theme of, of discovering the extraordinary in the ordinary. Yeah, it, 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 for me, it's been a journey. And a lot of the things that I share and talk about in life are personal experiences that I reflect on that then relate, that other people can relate to. And for me, it was more of, I had that mundane corporate job journey. And the moment that I stopped looking at what I do and started focusing on who I am, clarity emerged. And what that enabled me to do then with that clarity is to also realize as I looked around that, you know, a lot of us are, are doing the ordinary, the everyday routines and living this life. And then in 2011, because throughout the journey, part of it is I got a position teaching at uh, working and teaching uh, at a university and engaging with youth. But they asked me to then do a TEDx talk. And the, I thought about it and, you know, I was thinking of the topic. What do, what do I want to share with people? And overwhelmingly, people said, look, you tell these amazing stories, you tell stories, but how can I tell stories? And it made me realize that really what we need to do is stop and then discover that extraordinary that lies within the ordinary. Think of it this way, like, you know, we do our routine, we go to work, we walk to work, we drive to work, uh, we go to school or whatever we do. 
But what I realized for myself is this process that I created that enabled me to discover the extraordinary and the ordinary. And then I shared it with people and they were like, okay, that totally makes sense. What I came up with was a concept that I call carpe, as in carpe diem. So carpe stands for curiosity, appreciation, reflection, perspectives, and experience. And it's like you go through this process of carpe in order to realize the extraordinary in the ordinary. So let me expand upon the carpe concept is the fact that curiosity is the center point in all this, because curiosity means you go with your lens open, your mind open, your radar open. And there may be something that you see that is mundane and ordinary, but it stops you. Your curiosity will stop you. And then the A kicks in, which is appreciation. Then you start appreciating this for more than what it is. It's it's beyond what the obvious is. R stands for reflection. And reflection is where we start thinking deeper about it and adding purpose and meaning. And P stands for perspectives, which layers into the reflections because we all have our own perspectives. So what I may deem uh, you know, something that stopped me and I share with you of what I see, you may see something totally different because of your perspectives. And experiences is capturing this as an experience. So it becomes a story, it becomes an experience, and it doesn't die an untimely death. Because if we don't catalog it as an experience, it, we'll never remember it, it's gone. If I may, I'll share an example with you sure. of how we discover the extraordinary and the ordinary. Now, one thing that I do is I carry with me puzzle pieces. Now, for your listeners, I'm holding up a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And if I said, I'm going to give you this single piece of a jigsaw puzzle, what can you do with one piece if I give that to you? Pretty much not much. It's a single piece. That's ordinary. But this single piece of a jigsaw puzzle is what people feel like. Now, Instead of that single piece, I'm going to transform it from ordinary to extraordinary. I hold a satchel, and in the satchel are puzzle pieces that come from my puzzle. If I give you a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle, do you realize my puzzle will never be complete without you? Do you realize how important and significant you are to my journey and my puzzle? But we forget that we are a part of someone's puzzle because we're always focused on that single piece. But the important part is no one piece is more important than the other, because if an end piece goes missing, can't complete it. If a centerpiece somewhere in the middle goes missing, it's you can't complete it. Every single piece has purpose and meaning. The interesting thing is over the years, I've given over 5000 pieces to remind people how important they are. And that's extraordinary because they've told me how it's taped to a mirror and it reminds them someone told them how important they are. It's traveled in backpacks around the world. It's in wallets. And when I see them at an event, they pull out the piece and they say, look, you gave it to me five years ago. I still hold on to it. So that's an example of how you take something ordinary and make it extraordinary. And I'll apply the carpe to it. So when this thought first emerged, I saw the, I was thinking of a connection that I needed because I'm holding an event I'm inviting people, but what could I use to connect people? And I remember seeing a puzzle uh, on the side. There's the curiosity, because curiosity stopped me. 
and I was looking at the puzzle pieces, now I'm stopped. A kicked in because I'm now appreciating it for more than what its usual purpose. It's not a jigsaw puzzle, but there's something here. And I started appreciating it more than what it was. And as I reflected, I started thinking about connection and how can I use this as a connecting tool? And then my perspectives kicked in, which added more significance to it. And all of a sudden, after all of this, it became an experience. And now I have something that I can actually share with people. And I've done this over the last eight, nine years, 5,000 pieces to date. That's a simple example of how you can take something ordinary and make it extraordinary. So simple. Mm -hmm. And yet, for many of us, it seems like, like, how did he really come up with it? You know, yeah. because you're right, we look at that single piece, mm -hmm. and we think it's worthless. Mm -hmm. And sadly, that's what so many of us we may not call ourselves worthless, but we yeah. don't think we're as important as everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I reflected on this yesterday in another podcast that it truly took me about 55 years of my life to say, wait a second, I'm better than I ever thought I was. I've been trying to make everybody else happy, doing what everybody else wants, waiting for me to be happy, and wondering, am I happy? And so I was seeing that puzzle piece as being all alone. Mm -hmm. I don't know what changed me other than I woke up one morning and said, enough is enough. That was just about the time that we decided that we would start podcasting and, and blogging. Because like you said, until you get it out there, until you share it, even share it with yourself, um, it's meaningless. Yeah. But as soon as I could say, hey, I'm worthy, what a difference. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it also goes to what you shared just right now uh, is this idea of story sharing or, okay, storytelling. <clears throat> I actually like to call it story sharing. And the reason I say that is storytelling is a unilateral, I'm gonna tell you a story. Okay. Story sharing is where we get into a conversation and I may share a story and you layer in and then I layer in and back and forth, back and forth. So we do story sharing. And I remember when I wrote my first book based on this TEDx speech, there's a piece I wrote right in the beginning that said there is fear in me in writing this book because of what people may think. The bigger fear is what if I don't do this book? And absolutely true. What if I don't do this? What are the possibilities and opportunities that I've overlooked or not? I mean, and then I, I stopped thinking about what, and that was also the other interesting part is when I was trying to think while I was writing this book, it was my first book ever. I wasn't an author prior to this. I thought to myself, you know, what is it that the, I can provide the audience? And it, I struggled with coming up with the process, the words, and the moment I stopped thinking about what the audience wanted and what I wanted to share, the words just flowed. And I was able to create the first book, which has led to my second now. But uh, that's the whole thing is we are all stories. We all have stories. And we hold on to them saying, well, they're not, they're not significant or who'd be interested in my story? No, no. It, 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 by doing that, you're withholding something that could be magnificent. 
You know, it's interesting that you say that because um, probably about 30 years ago, um, we sat my parents down, my husband took out the video recorder, and we told my parents, just talk, tell us how you met, mm -hmm. whatever you want to tell us. And um, they were very verbal, and I am so grateful for that. But a couple of years later, we sat my mother-in-law down, and almost the whole video is, nobody would be interested if I talked about my aunt. Nobody would be interested if I talked about how my mother curled my hair and put a bow in it. And we never got the full stories, but we got little bits and pieces of it, which are so magnificent to us because those are things we didn't know. Um, and sometimes we, when we think about it, we think, well, maybe that's why we're doing certain things today. Um, and one of the stories my father talked about was his father and his uncle uh, back right around 1910 um, joined what was called the Barnstormers Baseball League. And um, they came home one day and they told their mother that they were being, being recruited by the Detroit Tigers. And their mother said, only bums play baseball. You are not bums. And they went back and they said, we can't sign these contracts. And interestingly enough, my youngest son, his love is baseball. And he found them on the roster because he knew about the story. And when he went to the Baseball Hall of Fame, he researched it. And we're so grateful for that because, you know, maybe that, you know, interest just seep through the genes somewhere. Yeah. So sharing those stories are very, very important. They can help us identify ourselves. Well, and, and you bring up a really great point because actually my second book is about exactly what you're talking about. It's about uh, identity, but it's also about uh, reconnecting because, uh, so I was born in England, raised in Canada. My parents come from Fiji Islands, which is near Australia. And my grandfathers are from India. And all too often I get people saying, what part of India are you from? Well, I was born in England, raised in Canada. They're like, no, 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 your parents, what part of India? Well, my parents are from Fiji. They're like, wait, are you Indian? And I'm like, well, my grandparents and my ancestors come from India. And uh, I, but the other part was because my grandfather left India in 1905 and landed in Fiji, we had very little information about the roots and where our exact location was. And in 2004, I went on a journey. All I had was a faded photograph, very little information to go by, to go find my grandfather's house. But in the process, it was also to go find my own identity as a British born Canadian, parents from Fiji and grandparents from India. And I describe it as I'm a foreigner, going to a land that shouldn't be foreign to me in search of a needle in a haystack and not even knowing where the haystack was. But all I had was this faded photograph of people from the village. It's a three and a half by three and a half orange dingy colored photograph for the audio listeners. And that was it. And, but the idea was, again, we struggle with identity. And one thing I would highly ask your audience to do, don't wait talk to people now, because the information I was getting was sparse or disjointed or 
they weren't quite sure because, you know, you're asking elders. And what was also really funny, though, is the fact that when you start asking these questions and you've got, you know, three or four elders sitting together, what turned out me trying to do research on where, you know, our villages, grandfather and all of that shifted to them reminiscing about their lives growing up in Fiji and how, and then they start laughing and, and saying, do you remember this? Do you remember that? So, and that was beautiful too, but start early because the information I had was sparse. But how I found my identity was this, is the idea, and I'm a, I'm a person that uses a lot of visuals and analogies, is my life was always segmented. And there's a addition in Indian cooking called a tali. And a tali is a platter with segmented dishes. And I'm Canadian, British, Indian, and Fijian. But I also played in an Irish military pipe band for 11 years. So there's maybe some Irish chutney mixed in there too. But uh, by going to India, I realized I'm not a tali. I'm actually this rice dish called kichdi, which is a blend of flavors, blend of spices. And I embrace, I, and after my journey to India, I could brace, embrace them all. So that's the realization of the identity piece that I came up with is the fact that actually we're all kichdi. We all come up with our own experiences, our own backgrounds, our own stories. And with regards to the ancestral roots, it was a difficult, arduous search, a lot of setbacks, but by some, I don't know, magical way, I actually found my grandfather's house using that photograph. And Oh, how wonderful. What was really fascinating, I mean, it, we sort of had an idea, but again, it, was, it wasn't clear, but through going on this journey, we eventually, by somebody directing us, we went to a house and in that photograph, there's a woman with a white shawl. And when she came out of the house that we were visiting or uh, walked up to, she looked at the picture and she said, this is me, who are you? And then I explained who I was. And then all of a sudden we realized we are related. So, I mean, I gave away the ending of the book, but equally at the same time, it's the journey that I found uh, along the way. And to, to that point as well, what I want to share with your audience is the fact that, you know, I, when I talk to people and they say, yeah, it's something I've always wanted to do, but you know what, I'll never find my ancestral roots or my, my grandfather's house or anything. And I said, okay. So for example, one person I was talking to, their ancestral roots are in Sicily. He says, no, I went there. And he said, we don't know the town. We don't know the house. We don't know anything except that our roots are in Sicily. And I said, and he said, but you know, it was amazing what you did is you found it. And I said, but here's the thing. When you went to Sicily, knowing that your ancestors come from here, was there something that connected you to this place? And he said, yeah, no, absolutely. Because I know my ancestors are here. Then I said, you've done the same thing I have. It's just in a different process, different way. So I think that's something that everyone can take away is the fact that we all have this identity. So I put it into a book called Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself, because it's exactly what the title is. My identity was lost. My roots were lost. But seeking the past, looking for my ancestral roots and finding myself, both of them. So lost and found. But I think you proved something else, Sam. 
And that is, we are all such a mixture mm -hmm. that our society right. has more of a reason to come together mm -hmm. and accept each other. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you and it's, you know, Canadian, British, Fiji, Indian, and it's like, Oh, okay. don't forget Irish. Oh, Irish. That's right. <laughs> um, and who knows? I mean, there, there could be even more that yeah. you, you haven't figured out yet, but we are all this mixture and, mm -hmm. you know, yet we tend to sit on the sidelines mm -hmm. and look at people like people did to you and say, so what part of India did your family come from? Yeah. Well, okay, I don't know where they all came from. I'll figure it out, but I have family in all these other areas. And it's interesting because my husband um, has been doing his ancestral roots through ancestry. And he found out, which is just like grabbed us. Um, I think it was his great grandmother from Germany actually was a doctor, okay? And she was a Jewish doctor. Mm. Now, as far as we know, my husband's family were all Christian on his father's side from Germany. His mother did come, her mother's family came from Ireland. But as we're reading this and we did more research, yeah, his grandmother, but she didn't, she didn't tell everyone that she was Jewish at the time. And um, so my husband went to his brother and shared it with his brother. Strangely, because his brother doesn't accept me because I happen to be Jewish. Mm -hmm. He said, well, I just want you to know, look at your bloodline, okay? Mm -hmm. We're all people. And that's what he was hoping to get across, yeah. okay? Yeah. This great grandmother of yours, how she became a doctor in Germany is just unbelievable to begin with. And then, you know, her religious beliefs and, and I've been holding on to that and I keep telling people, you know, we are a mixture, Totally. you know, and, you know, my husband is Christian. I'm Jewish. We have a son. We observe just about everything. Mm -hmm. And why? Because yeah. it makes us feel good. Yeah. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that that's where my roots are, Yeah. but I want to experience. Oh, and the fact that you're kitchery. Yeah. You're this race dish. You're a blend of flavors. No, and, and it's fascinating because, I mean, I did my ancestry DNA testing as well, you know, regarding related to this book. And it was interesting and fascinating because I thought I'm going to just spend a hundred bucks to tell me I'm 100% Indian. Yeah. Um, but it came back that, uh, you know, now the results and, and, and what was interesting is you also get people saying, uh, it's not accurate uh, or it's not, you know, no, I, I don't think that's true. No, it's very true because the ancestral DNA that they come up with with relatives are my direct relatives that also took the DNA testing, but we didn't know we took the test. But what was interesting is about 33% of me actually comes from India. The 60 plus percent of me is Pakistan, Afghanistan to the Persian border and Oman. And, you know, and part of it is the fact that colonialism put the lines of where India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and all this is, whereas everybody in, in our background were travelers, were traders. And that's where they, 
used to travel and never, never worry about that sort of thing. So that was fascinating. But the other thing that I think is really interesting is the fact that, I mean, I've, it's all about perspectives and I've traveled to the Middle East numerous times for work. And I remember the first time I went to the Middle East, the number of people who told me, you're making a huge mistake. It's extremely dangerous. Have you not watched the news? And I was landing in Kuwait and Kuwait was right next to Iraq. Iraq was going through major upheaval and turmoil. And people said, you know, I don't think you should go, but I went. But I also went to the other parts of the region for work as well. And I remember coming back and people said, so what was it like? How dangerous was it? And I said, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe how dangerous this place is. And they said, really? And I said, yeah, I tried to cross the road and I couldn't. It was so dangerous. And they're like, wait, what about the terrorism? What about kidnappings? What about bombings and shootings? I said, do you realize it's safer for me to walk around Bahrain at midnight than it is for me to walk in many parts of the places I've ever traveled? And it's not because I look like I fit in there. Even my Canadian colleagues who went said the same thing. Now, I will tell you, there is something extremely dangerous that I did encounter in the Middle East. And what that was is uh, I spoke at a conference, finished on Thursday, Saturday I'm leaving. And uh, one of the conference goers, this wonderful young woman said, I'm going to pick you up on Friday. I'm going to show you Bahrain. So Friday morning she came. And as I walked to the car, she said, Sam, I'm so sorry, but the plans have changed. I can't show you Bahrain today. And I said, oh, don't worry, you go do what you have to do. She goes, no, 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 you don't understand. My mom says I have to bring you home for lunch. The dangerous part. Do you know a Bahraini mother has cooked all day long and there's an empty plate in front of me and she's got a spoon and she <laughs> wants to feed me? That's dangerous. <laughs> the I hospitality, the, the love and the care that they showed me my only recommendation or thing is if you're ever in a, in a Bahraini, Indian, Asian, anywhere really, and a mother is cooked for you and she's sitting across from you with a spoon, my only suggestion is eat very slowly because she <laughs> is going to keep feeding you. But that's the perspectives. That's why you got to go out and experience the stories, the extraordinary out of the ordinary. All of that just resonates. But don't be guided by just these perspectives that are imposed upon us. Well, and every day we have an opportunity to take a journey. Yeah. And, you know, I, again, as I said to you earlier, you know, I spent the first 55 years of my life, you know, at least in my mind, doing the same thing every day, you know, make trying to make my parents proud of me, uh, you know, making sure that my husband was happy, that my kids were safe and whatever. And, um, you know, it was like, what am I doing for me? Mm -hmm. And I remember my mother saying to me one day, well, you're doing all this for you. If you make me happy, aren't you happy? And one day I looked at her and I said, no. <laughs> and, and we actually sat down and we talked about it. And she said, well, what, why do you say that? And I said, because my mother wanted me to call her every Saturday mm -hmm. at one o'clock in the afternoon. And that just was not convenient for me. Mm -hmm. And, but I did it. And when I finally said to her, calling you at one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, mom, just doesn't make me happy. 
She said, oh, so when do you want to call me? I said, can I call you Sunday evening after dinner? Oh, yeah. It was like, okay. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing I'm a little bit happier now. Number one, I had a little bit more control, yep. but, but I wasn't stopping in the middle of my day and I was still making her happy. Mm. And so when I started this podcast this year, I said to people, the reason I'm doing it, we're all taking steps every day. And so many of us are looking in the mirror yep. and saying, when's it my turn? Mm -hmm. Well, the reality of it is it's your turn right now. Yeah. Oh, and if you don't sure. take it, whether it's finding your ancestry, mm -hmm. finding your purpose, and you brought that word up before, purpose, mm -hmm. so, so important. Mm -hmm. But if we don't have a purpose, why are we getting up in the morning? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, to that, to that same tone, I often tell people, because I get a, a lot of people coming up saying, oh, you know, you know, this person wants me to do this. I feel bad having to say no. But if I say yes, it's this. And I said, why are we looking at this as an absolute of yes and no? How about you go back to them and say, well, here's what I can do. And now you own it. So here's what I can do. And they were like, oh, and I, but we're programmed to look at it as an absolute that I have to either say yes, or if I say no, I'm going to really disappoint people. Funny enough, after this call, I have to do the same thing right now and uh, reach out and tell someone, here's what I can do, as opposed to what they want me to do. And I said, unfortunately, it's not going to work. Uh, um, so I have to do that right after this call. I'm going to have to do my own medicine here. And, you know, I think once we hear that other people mm -hmm. are conducting their lives that way, mm -hmm. that not everybody else has it so perfect. Oh. Um, you know, I've been working with somebody who wants to start a podcast and uh, she's been in TV and radio and, you know, publications for years. I looked at her when she first came to me and I thought, oh, she's way up here. You know, how am I going to communicate with her? But then I realized she is more insecure than I am. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the podcast, not yeah. about other things. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay. So this is my specialty. Find your purpose, find your specialty, yeah. um, glow about it. Don't gloat, but yeah. glow because totally. that, that glow makes such a difference. Right. So tell us a little bit when you give a TED talk, mm -hmm. how are you approached? How does somebody come to you and say, hey, Sam, I think you'd make great speaker right i think it's by putting yourself out there because i do about 30 35 speaking opportunities per year i teach uh, i you know and, and you sit down with i do three to eight conversations a week to help people maneuver in life and then it just comes back to you because of that presence you've created but i've created a presence in in the whole understanding it's it's never been about well what's in it for me I just have a lot that's been given to me and my, my responsibility is to share it with people. And the more I share, more comes back. And that's where uh, I just remember because of that presence you've created, people then come up and say, well, you know, I think we, we're organizing a TEDx. Uh, I think you'd be a really good fit. And that's the second one as well. So I've done two of those. I never actively 
sought those out. They just came to me and, you know, it, it, I'm glad they did. Otherwise, the other way is you, you have to find a way and a method to get your story to someone. And there's a, a ton of TEDx's around the world. But really what they're looking for is, and what I've always said is, you need to have that hook and maybe three takeaways or whatever the audience member needs to take away from today or whatever. Build that in as a, a pitch because you may be called to do a pitch, you may be called to submit something, but you know, think about it from a standpoint. And uh, there's, a, there's a, two good books that I would highly recommend. One is by Chris Anderson, who actually is the TED curator. And uh, it's, his book is called Talk, Talk Like TED. Okay. Uh, and the other one is by Gallo called The Storyteller's Secret about how you build stories. And both of those books really provide you a base that you can build that signature talk that is going to help you. Because in Chris Anderson's book, he actually tells you the do's and don'ts of if you want to do a TEDx speech, how you do it. And the other part is if you do like TED Talks, uh, he's got a huge, massive list of TED Talks that are listed there. And these are like the best. And uh, you can always go in and just sort of tick them off, almost like you're binge watching something, but you get so much value out of it. But that's how I would say is build your presence. And then if they don't approach you, start approaching them, but have that signature. Here's what's important and what's the title. And then as a result of it, here's some key takeaways that I think are really important. Well, and I wasn't necessarily asking, you know, because mm -hmm. I want to do a TED Talk. I don't. Mm -hmm. um, I like doing what I'm doing. Um, but I find it interesting because there are people out there who say, I'll never be approached. I could never do it. And it's, well, then find out about it. If it's something that you think you would be interested in, go do the research. You know, sitting around saying, it's never going to happen to me. No, it won't. It, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember um, back in 1980, I was, um, I was diagnosed with chronic migraines and I remember saying to the doctor, so what does this mean? And the doctor said, you're going to have them all the time. They're going to come out of nowhere. Sometimes medications are going to work. Sometimes it's not. You're going to have to learn to live with your migraines. And I went home and um, my husband cried. I didn't. I said, if I'm going to live with them, I'm going to share them. Mm. And that was before um, email and everything else. I think I had a Commodore 64 at the time. So that tells you how old you know, my computer was. Um, and I sat down and I wrote something and I sent it out to a bunch of hospitals. And I said, I want to come in and talk to your staff about what it means to be a chronic pain survivor. My husband thought I was crazy. And these hospitals started calling me, come on in, come talk to us. And I did that for 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and be, by the time I did that, there were chronic pain support groups and pain management. And I'm not saying that I made, you know, got them up and running, mm -hmm. but, but I feel connected. And yeah. that's what I tell our listeners. Mm -hmm. What is it? 
that really spurs you on? What, yeah. what story do you have to share? Mm-hmm. You have a lot of stories. Um, and for our listeners out there, I'm going to have Sam back because when I looked at his bio, it was, so what do we want to talk about today? Um, and I certainly wanted to get your book out there. So remind everybody the book and how they can find it. Sure. Well, the, the first book I wrote was Personal Storytelling, Discovering the Extraordinary Out of the Ordinary. And it's based on that TEDx I did. And it's a, it's, it's a workbook or a help book to help people start telling their stories. The second book I wrote is called Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself. And that's the one about seeking my ancestral roots, but also my identity, which incidentally, now I'm in the process of making it into a screenplay. No, no. And if it happens, I want a cameo in there. I want like in the background somewhere. Uh, But again, it goes back to what you just said about, you know, years ago, like 10 years ago, writing and being an author never even was a factor in my mind. But I taught myself. I I said, here's the journey. Uh, Same thing with the screenplay I'm now working on right now with another screenplay writer is I've never done this. But we're learning along the way. So to your point, you know, the, if you, I always say without trying, all you will see are the shadows of what might've been as opposed to the realization. And the other quote that I want to share with you, which I think is really important is obstacles are the necessary bricks on a road to success. Do not fear the obstacles, embrace them because that is part of the journey because we learn from those obstacles. I've learned from my obstacles and I, I thrive in them. So I don't, I don't look for them, but when they happen, it's like, okay, how? And that's the extraordinary and the ordinary. Rather than saying, okay, it didn't work and throwing it in the bin or whatever. Like, okay, let me look at this and learn from this and then emerge stronger. I love that hmm. because I grew up in a generation that uh, you, know, you were supposed to not even see those obstacles. You know, mm-hmm. there was no margin for error. Uh, if I would have told my parents, you know, I made a mistake, it'd be like, "Excuse me, you made a mistake. How dare you? Go back and fix it." Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only recently that I sort of enjoy my mistakes because I can go back and say, yeah. "How did that happen?" Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, I, I love it. The obstacles mm-hmm. are are there for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, I want to thank you for being our guest. We'll have you back. Um, I want to talk to you about your perspective on the youth and, uh, you know, what we can see for the generations ahead. Mm -hmm. So until that time, you take care. And uh, I'm going to go prepare for the snowfall. (laughs) No, thank you so much. And uh, I leave your listeners with uh, the quote I live by. Everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. You're a living story. You are, your story and your life needs to be shared no matter who you are. So just keep being an amazing autobiography. How wonderful. I love it. Have a great day, Sam. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.